the First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. If you guys brought a Bible with you or you have a Bible app on your mobile phone, uh, please turn with me to the book of Joshua. We're going to be uh, looking in, the, in chapter number 24. And in, in this morning, I just want to just welcome you back to the sixth part and the final part of this series titled, Be, um, be Strong and Courageous. And uh, as, as, as we've said before, we've subtitled this series, uh, Lessons from Joshua, because we are wrapping up basically an in-depth look at the book of Joshua. And and the reason why we named this series Be Strong and Courageous is because four times in the opening chapter of Joshua, the the leader of Israel um, after Moses, uh, he is told four times to be strong and courageous. In fact, um, he is told three times by God, and then he's told by his own people at the end of chapter 1 to be strong and courageous. And so the main theme that we've been talking about for the last several weeks is this idea that being strong and courageous isn't so much about our own strength and and courage. Uh, Being strong and courageous is about the trust that we have for God. Instead of us believing in ourselves and in our own strength, we are believing and trusting God to do what God has promised to do. And so being strong and courageous is in fact an act of faith. And so the main thrust of this series has been that just like Joshua, okay, God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for your life, and He has a plan for your life. He has a plan for all of our lives. God, God has something He wants to do in your life. And, the, and, and you were saved by God and redeemed to be a part of God's plan, part of God's redemptive plan. He, he saved you for a reason. And I've been, I've been saying this now for six weeks in a row, and I stand here firmly convinced of that very fact by what I know about God and what I know about you. And, and it's time that we all take seriously this idea that God has a plan for, for you and your life because it's easy, it's really easy to come here on Sunday morning and, and hear something about that I might say that God has a plan for your life and you can even say, amen, that's right, God has a plan for my life and then you walk out of here and nothing's changed in your life. Because maybe down deep you really don't actually believe that God has a plan for your life or maybe you just believe that you're just unworthy or you're not important enough or maybe you just don't think that God really even cares about you know your life but you're wrong God absolutely cares and no matter who you are and no matter where you've been and no matter what you have done God has a plan for your life you are worthy and important to God now you might not be called to lead an army into battle. And you might not be called to, to be the spiritual and military leader of God's chosen people, but you were absolutely called into the fray. You were absolutely called into the fight. God has a plan for your life. He has something He wants to accomplish through you. God rescued you through Jesus Christ for a purpose. And as we talked about, you know, your purpose can be a number of things. Perhaps God's plan for you is to stop complaining about how things are at work and go and to be the light that shines there, the brightest for Jesus Christ. Maybe God's plan for you is to be the very best Christian role model you can be for your children and your children's friends. Maybe God's plan for you is to start a business or maybe be, you know, a community activity or a ministry that somehow you come in contact with people that's outside your normal circle of influence. Maybe God's plan for your life is that you get more involved in the local church. Or maybe His plan for your life is to, to, to paint buildings and mop floors. 
Maybe his plan involves becoming an evangelist or a pastor or even a small group leader. Maybe God wants you to be involved with the Chamber of Commerce or, or maybe he wants you to become a, a coach in youth sports or maybe he just wants you to become a community leader. Or maybe God's plan for your life is just for you to, be, to, is for you to now live in a, in a quiet life and turn down all the noise that is, that is drowning out his voice. Maybe he just wants you to draw close to him in prayer and in word right now so he can comfort you and heal you. Maybe God's plan for you right now is to help you to get back on your feet and straighten out your head so you can break free of the garbage that's holding you down. You see, whether it's big or small or grand or simple, God has a plan for your life. And you just need to believe that he has something he wants to accomplish through you. And in that plan... For your life. God is calling you to be strong and courageous because God made you a promise. He promised that, he will, that if you will follow where He leads and you will do what He's calling you to do, He will knock down your enemies. He will knock down your obstacles. He has promised to be with you no matter where you go. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. Being strong and courageous isn't about your personal strength or courage. It's about your faith in God. Being strong and courageous as we pursue God's plan for our lives in the face of adversity and difficulty is an outward demonstration of that internal trust that we have for God and His promises. We're to be strong and courageous not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And so that's been the theme of this series that we opened up with. And then week two, we talked about that we must not hesitate to follow where God leads. We need to be strong and courageous and not let our fear cause us to hesitate or rebel against God's plan for our lives. Because our hesitation or refusal to do what God is calling us to do is the very opposite of what faith is. And that hesitation has consequences, just like it did for the people of Israel. They lost the blessing of the promised land because they refused to do what God had called them to do. And then in the third week, we came face to face with the fact that Oftentimes, we as Christians, we ask the wrong question. Just like Joshua, we ask if God is on our side. And that is entirely the wrong question. That's entirely the wrong question. The real question we need to ask is, are we on God's side? And there's a huge difference in perspective there. Because we tend to think that our life is about us and that God exists to give us what we want. Especially here in America and in Western society where our individualism causes us to focus on ourselves. But the truth is that God doesn't exist for us. We exist for Him. And so the right question then is, are we on God's side? Are we on God's side as individual people? Are we on God's side as a church? Are we on God's side as a community? Are we on God's side as a country? Because the truth is, God has absolutely a side that he's declared. And we need to make sure that we're on that side. And then in part four of this series, we, we talked about the devastating consequences that comes as a result of allowing sin in our camp and in our lives. Okay? And, and the havoc that, that it wreaks for God's plan in your life. In fact, we looked at how Israel allowed sin to enter their camp and the consequences of that. And during th that discussion, we talked about the reason why it's such a big deal, why sin is such a big deal, is because sin is so very destructive. Okay, it's destructive and it has huge consequences. It always does. And the sin affects everyone. Sin is infectious and it has a rippling effect in the world around us. Our sin impacts other people and other people's sin impacts us. And then thirdly, God's takes, he, God takes sin seriously. He absolutely takes it serious because it is gravely serious. It's gravely serious because it cost him his son's life 
to pay for our sin. And so sin is serious and it affects everyone. It's destructive and we need to continually be working to root out the sin that gets lodged into our lives, especially that hidden sin that nobody knows about. We need to be careful not to allow that sin to get lodged in our hearts and our lives. And then last week, we talked about how we, as we pursue God's plan for our lives, we need to continually, we need to continually seek God's counsel. In fact, we said in everything, we need to seek God's counsel. When we looked at Joshua, how twice he tried to walk in his own wisdom and he didn't seek God's counsel and it backfired on him. Joshua was following God's plan for his life, but somehow he became complacent and, and was faced with a couple of decisions. And instead of going to God and asking for direction, he just relied on his own judgment and understanding to make the decisions. And he was wrong. And there were consequences as a result. And, and so the message for us is always, always seek God's counsel. And we talked about the way we do that is, number one, we need to make sure that we have a relationship with God to start with through Christ. Number two, we need to pray about everything. That's what the Word says, by, you know, in everything through prayer. Number three, we need to study and read the Word of God because God has already given us most of the answers that we need in His Word. And number four, we need to live a life worthy of the calling that we've been called to. Paul says that we need to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, you know, holy and pleasing, so that we can, we can discern the will of God. And that right there is where, we, where we've been the last several weeks and we have taken you know, an up-close personal look at the life of Joshua. And the, and the lessons that we've learned from Joshua in his life and his experience are really kind of indispensable to us as Christians. And we can actually summarize these lessons just really, really quickly this way. Number one is to follow God's plan for your life. Follow where He leads you. Number two, don't hesitate or refuse, but, but follow God. Be strong and courageous. And number three, make sure you're on God's side. It's not about your side. It's about God's side. And number four, you need to continually be weeding out the sin in your life. And number five, you need to always seek God's counsel. And these are the five major lessons that we've seen so far that we've been able to glean from the book of Joshua to this point. And let me just tell you, okay, if you were to do these five things, if you were to actually put into practice these five things consistently in your life, you will find yourself in the center of God's will for your life. And I promise you, if you find yourself where God wants you to be, there is no place of greater comfort or peace or joy. So I want to encourage you to follow these five lessons for your lives. But with that, there's one more lesson from Joshua that I, I really want to cover today. And, it, and it's, really, it's really one I really feel like we all kind of need to hear. And, and, and so I'm going to pick up and we're going to pick up that lesson in Joshua. It's going to be in chapter 24. And before we kind of jump in the text here, let me just kind of, kind of remind you where we are in the story. All right? Joshua was Moses' protege. And at about the age of 70 to 80, he was chosen by God to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land. And Joshua didn't hesitate. He did exactly what God asked him to do. And so he led the people across the Jordan River and they embarked on a campaign to conquer the land. And Joshua's strategy was actually pretty simple. What he did was he conquered cities like, like Jericho and Ai, which were in the middle of the promised land, effectively cutting the, the north and the south off from each other. Okay? And then he turned his attention towards the, the, uh, the, the kingdoms in the south and he conquered them and then he turned north and conquered the enemies. There Now, Joshua uh, had three basic parts to his mission, okay? And the first one, he was to lead the people across the Jordan River. 
into the promised land, and he accomplished that. And then he was to remove his enemies from the land, and, and he was mostly successful at that. In fact, um, after a few years of fighting, God came to Joshua, and he said, basically, that you're an old man, okay? And there's still quite, there's still quite a bit of land to be conquered. Uh, but he goes basically and says, I'm, I'm going to take care of that myself, Joshua. I mean, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel is what God says. And God continues to say, only allot the land of Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Which is the third part of the mission that God had, had given to Joshua. Is to give the land as an inheritance to the people of Israel. And so the chapters between 13 through 21 is basically all the details you ever wanted to know about how Joshua and the 12 tribes of Israel divided the promised land up. And so for all intents and purposes, Joshua for his part was successful in completing the mission that God had given him. Yes, Joshua made some mistakes. Yes, there were absolutely some setbacks. And there were times when, when he forgot to seek God's counsel. But in the end, he did what he was called to do. And he, he did not allow fear to cause him to hesitate. He continually checked to make sure he was on God's side. And he was working continually to weed out sin in the camp. And he eventually, he, all, he eventually sought God's counsel and everything. And so now he's like 110 years old. Okay? And, and he's right where God wants him to be, in the center of God's will. And so if you can just kind of imagine, we've been talking about this movie theme to this point. Um, to carry this kind of movie theme out a bit further, if you could just imagine, this is the part of the movie where the conflict is now over and things begin to settle down. And this is what they call the resolution part. Okay, and so if you can imagine this scene where people, you know, are, are taking up, you know, the land and they're taking possession of, of, of their properties and, and they're marking off, you know, the sections and they're beginning to build their houses and, and they're, 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 they're beginning to plow the fields where they're, where they're starting their farms and their homes and whole communities are, are beginning to come together and, and live in particular areas. And if you can imagine kind of like this, the shift begins to, uh, the, the scene begins to shift from this kind of general overall view of this prosperous uh, nation of Israel, and then he begins to focus on one man, and it's the old man Joshua who is now reflective, and he contemplates, you know, his life and the things that that he has been through, and all that the nation of Israel has accomplished. And, and imagine, like, as he thinks about these things, he smiles as he thinks about what God has done for him, and as he thinks about the people that he served alongside, and and now he's at this point where he knows. He knows for a fact that the end is near for him. He knows that, that, that twilight is upon him and his life is coming to a close. And so just like Moses did, what he wants to do is he wants to gather the nation of Israel to himself so he can speak to them one last time. And he wants to remind them of who they are and where they came from. And he wants to share with them the promises that God has made. And he wants to give them one final bit of wisdom. And he wants to say basically goodbye. And in this conversation that, that, that he begins in, in chapter 23, goes all the way through chapter 24. And, and I've read this conversation many, many times in my Christian walk. Okay? And I've always thought as I read this, this is a great way to wrap up this story. But recently I began to read it again. This conversation that Joshua has with his people. I started thinking about you know, what he's saying and the meaning of what he's saying. And, and something began to stir in my heart. And, and, and there's something about this conversation that actually kind of bothers me. Um, there's something about this, what, what Joshua has to say here that actually concerns me. And in fact, there's something in this conversation that really just doesn't set well with me. 
And so what I want to do this morning is I want to read for you part of this conversation. And I just want to see if you pick up you know, what I'm picking up. And, and, and I want to see if it kind of bothers you, what, what bothers me. You see, near the end of Joshua's conversation, he talks about you know, you know, their, their faithfulness and their commitment to God. And, 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 and he kind of rehashes everything God's done. Okay? And near the end of that conversation in chapter 24, in verse 14, he says this. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, this right here, this is a really famous passage, okay? I mean, this is a famous scripture. I mean, if you've been in church any time at all, you've heard people say, choose whom you will serve, but as for me and my household... You know, I will serve the Lord. And there are a lot of Christians who have like plaques and pictures with this text emblazoned on it in their homes. Okay? And in fact, there are several Christians who actually take, have taken this scripture and put it on a plaque alongside another little plaque that says, you know, on the, on the outside door, it says, no solicitation. You know, as for, for me and my household, we'll serve the Lord. It's, it's, it's like notice to like, you know, people from like, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons that come to the door like, hey, don't even bother We've already made our decision who we're serving, so don't even like you know, don't even bother you know coming here. And, and and in our Christian culture, this text has really become really really important to us. But I have to tell you, when you read this story, and when you read this story in context, there's something that really really bothers me about this. When you read this text in its context, what Joshua is saying here really seems out of place. What Joshua is saying here really seems odd. I mean, he's saying, you know, serve God, you know, but if you think that serving God is wrong, then choose for yourself the God that you want to, you want to serve, which is the God of Egypt or the God of this land. But make your choice, but I'm going to serve the Lord. Why in the world is he saying that? Why does he have to make a point to say to these people this? I mean, think about this. The nation of Israel spent 400 years in bondage to, to Egypt. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed for a deliverer and a deliverer came. His name was Moses. Okay, And Moses, when he came, it wasn't like he just showed up. I mean, he came and he did like 10 amazing miracles through the power of God. Okay, And a lot of the people that Josh was talking to were kids when this happened. Okay, They were present when this happened. There were a lot of eyewitnesses that were there. Okay, And also... Moses wrote everything down and everybody memorized what Moses wrote. So there was a written record about what happened that day. And when they left Egypt, okay, when they left Egypt, the Egyptians changed their mind and came after them. And then the, the nation of Israel found itself between the, 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 the Red Sea and the uh, army of the Egyptians. And they panicked and they were starting to cry out. And Moses says, you know, just be still. God's going to fight for you. And then God parts the Red Sea for them and they cross, you know, on, on dry land, and as soon as they get across, the, the, the army comes in behind them, and then God puts the sea back and basically wipes out the Egyptian army. And then God led the people by day in a pillar of smoke, and, and by night in a pillar of fire. And God's presence visibly descended on Mount Sinai to the point they were terrified. They wouldn't even go near the mountain. Moses, you go up and talk to God. And many of these people saw 
you know, uh, saw this happening when Moses came down with the law. And many people there were there as children when, when Joshua, you know, brokenheartedly was turned back with the rest of the Israelites from the, from the promised land because they wouldn't actually go in. They, they hesitated, you know, out of fear. And almost all these people grew up wandering the desert where their clothes and their shoes never wore out. And all these people, every single day, would get up and they would wake up and they would go outside and they would find their food laying on the ground, the manna that God had provided for them every single day. And when they needed water, Moses would tap on a rock and water would come out. Okay? And God's presence was visible with them. In fact, wherever they went and they set up the tabernacle, the presence of God, His visible presence, descended on the tent of the meeting and the people could see God was in their midst. And finally, comes the time when it's time for them to move in the promised land. And what does God do? He parts the Jordan River for them, uh, like He did the Red Sea. God promises to be with them. He causes the walls of Jericho to fall down in front of them, this fortified city. And then God was with them as they defeated one enemy after the next. You see, all of these people lived their entire lives in close contact to God. They were in close contact with God and the work that He was doing. God was there and they could see it. God was there and they knew it. It wasn't ever a question, is there really a God? They never even doubted that for a second. Is God really there? They had witnessed his awesome power. They, 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 they saw his fierce judgment. They experienced his miracles. They lived daily on the visible provision that he gave for their lives. He was present continually in their lives. And there wasn't any question. There was no doubt. But yet Joshua, after all of this, after all these miracles and after all God has done, he's at the end of his life saying, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose from this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Why in the world would he need to say that to these people? I mean, think about it. You would think these people wouldn't need to hear that message. They should not have needed to be reminded to serve the Lord because God was visible in their day-to-day lives. He even goes so far in verse 20, he says, If you forsake the Lord, he warns them, If you forsake the Lord... And serve other gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done good. Why would Joshua have to make this point to these people? Why such a stern warning to a group of people who were so close to God? They were God's people. They saw him at work. Well, I believe that Joshua says this for two reasons. There are two reasons I believe that Joshua makes a point. Uh to talk about this and to give such a strong warning. Because I think that Joshua actually understood people. And I think he understood, number one, prosperity causes people to lose sight of their need for God. Prosperity and success has this tendency to cause people to lose sight of their need for God. You see, when people struggle and people suffer and when people find that they have nowhere place to turn, they seek God. That's why it's important That's why so many people have to hit rock bottom before they will actually go and seek God. 
I mean, there's something about pain and sorrow and suffering that draws us in to God's presence. In fact, there are people that I can count on who will come to church when things fall apart. And when I see them, I know things must be tough because here they are. They're seeking God's healing and help. But once the pain stops and once, once, the, once the, the anguish is gone, people tend to then wander from God because the second thing is, is people's hearts are prone to wander. It's just completely natural for us. That's why in the song, Come Thou Fount, we sing, prone to wander, now I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are all prone to wander from God, especially when things are good. Because we don't sense in our prosperity that we need Him. And that's the way it's always been. In fact, the book of Judges, which is the book that follows Joshua... We see this play out over, you know, over and over again. In fact, Joshua, as long as he was alive, the book says, that, that, that he was able to remind the people and the Israelites to follow God, but after he dies, they basically turn and forget about God. Why? Because they were in the promised land. Okay? They were living in the land of flowing with milk and honey. They had everything that they needed. They were, they were at peace with their enemies. Things were good. They didn't realize they needed God. And they even stopped thanking God for what He had done. And they just assumed that life was good. And that's just the way that it was. And so they began to forget about God. And then shortly after that, God would withdraw His favor and His protection from His people. And the enemies of Israel would attack them and exploit them. And then God's, you know, God would, would find, God's people would find themselves in need. And suddenly, what do they do? They cry out to God for help. Lord, help us. Lord, protect us. We want to follow you. And then God would send someone to rescue them, a judge. And then they would serve God for a while. And things would be really, really good. But then soon, you know, when things were good for a period of time, they began to forget. They began to kind of like do what they wanted to do. They began to like fall away from God. They began to do things that were evil. And then God would allow them to fall on their face again. And things would get hard, and they would cry out to God, and He would rescue them. And the cycle just went over and over and over again. That's the whole book of Judges. That's the theme of the book of Judges. It's people, they're with God, they're away from God, they're with God, they're away from God. It's, just, it's the same thing over and over again. That, my friends, is why Joshua issues such a strong warning to people who are following God, because he knew that prosperity causes us to lose sight of our need for God. He knew that people are prone to wander. He knew that the temptation to believe that they themselves are the reason why they were successful and strong, you know, successful was a strong temptation. They knew that there was a temptation to believe that everything was always going to be good. That when people live in prosperous times, there's this sense that it's always going to be this way. And he also knew people had short attention spans. He knew that our relationship with God requires focus and attention and prosperity tends to make us less attentive and less focused. And it actually makes us a bit complacent. And that's exactly what happens to the people of Israel. And that's exactly what happens today in our culture. I mean, we've all seen it, I think, in the lives of people around us. You know, people who, where they become complacent and they wander away from God. Maybe in our own lives, we've experienced that. But let me just remind you that we see this happening in the world around us right now. We live in a culture right now that's become the most prosperous culture as a, as a result and it's become complacent as a nation just like the nation of Israel and we have stopped listening to the warning of Joshua we live in a time of unparalleled prosperity incredible prosperity and some people might just immediately want to disagree with me and say no 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 things are hard here in America let me just remind you of a couple things okay just about everybody 
in this country has a house to live in. And just about every one of those houses has, is warm in the winter and cool in the summer. Just about everybody has a television, a car, a game system, a mobile phone, and just about everybody has running water and electricity. Just about everybody in our country has something to eat. Contrary to some what people would, would say, people are not starving to death in the United States of America. There might be some people that are hungry. I'm going to say that. But there's nobody starving to death because of lack of access to food in America. There are way too many programs, there are way too many people that care to make that happen, to, to make for that to, to happen. I mean, right here in this community, there are four food programs uh, besides food stamps in WIC and BCOP. And three of those programs are run by churches, including our own. People are not dying because of lack of food in America. There's plenty to go around. In fact, the major health problem in our country is not starvation. It is the opposite. It's obesity. The reality is that things in America okay, are good and have been good for a very long time. And to say that, that, that's, that, it, that it's not is just to be simply ignorant of the facts. Because the truth is this. If you make $8 an hour here in America... If you make $8 an hour here in our country, you are among the 6% top wealthiest people in the entire world. That means 94% of the entire world's population is poorer than you are at $8 an hour. We live in a country of tremendous prosperity. We don't know what it's like to truly suffer. We've never had to suffer through the Great Depression. We didn't suffer through the Dust Bowl. We, in this generation, don't know what it's like to sacrifice and recycle everything in our hand to get our, we can get our hands on in an effort to, to support a global war on tyranny. We don't know what it's like to live through a civil war. We know about the American Civil War, but we don't know what it's like to live through a civil war. We don't know what it's like to suffer under a communist regime. We don't know what it's like to live through a genocide. We don't know what it's like to live in third world class housing when an earthquake hits. We don't know what it's like to live in an area where runaway diseases rampage entire villages. We live in an area, and in an area where people get a free education up to the 12th grade. We live at a time where anybody can go to college if they really want to and are willing to work at it. We live in an era that you just show up at the hospital without money and without resources to pay the bill and somebody will treat you. We live in a time when just about everyone has enough disposable income to watch movies and play Xbox and go to amusement parks and go out to eat and travel to some extent. We live in an era where just about everybody has access to, to, to the internet in some fashion. We live in a time when just about every kid can play a sport and be involved in something, basketball, football, cheerleading, you know, whatever. We live in a time and an era where if you're willing to work, if you're willing to get up and go to work, that you can make anything out of your life that you want to, regardless of where you come from, regardless of what your limitations are. We live in an era and a time where the poorest among us have conveniences that the richest people could only dream about 100 years ago, like air conditioning, television, and smartphones. In fact, just the smartphone alone gives anyone who possesses it the ability to access more information instantly than was dreamed 20 years ago by people in universities and research centers. And I'm not, just, I'm not saying that there are no hardships in our country. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there's not any injustice. I'm not saying that people individually don't suffer. 
But if you look back in history, no other nation has ever had the kind of prosperity our nation has at this very moment. America has been blessed like no other country before. And just like the nation of Israel, God has been exceedingly, exceedingly good to us. But just like the nation of Israel, the tide has changed and that prosperity is now beginning to take a toll on our culture as we become complacent. Our culture is changing because of this prosperity. This prosperity is changing the way people in this generation even views the simple things of reality. We now live in a culture where the values of hard work and commitment and dedication are traded in for convenience and, and, and fun and novelty. We live in a culture that values materialism and worships celebrity. You know, and as a people, we have so much that we value and we crave excess. There is never enough. The more we have, the more we want. The more we get, the more it just seems normal to us. We also live, because of this prosperity and time in our culture, where we, have, where we have the privilege to entertain the most ridiculous notions and the right to uncritically accept the idea that there is no standard for truth. There's now a generation of people who believe that the truth is what I want it to be or what I believe it to be. That there's no objective moral standard because there is no, because we as a nation no longer believe that we need God and His protection and His guidance. In fact, a growing number of people are seeing God and His followers as the antagonists to society. And more and more people believe that God is simply who I want Him to be and not someone to be served lest we offend somebody. And because of that, we live in a culture with no solid foundation for truth. We are increasingly surrounded by people who gladly pervert and invert what is right and wrong. I mean, it's astounding to hear the things that were once wrong are now called right, and what was right is now wrong. I mean, let me just talk about how bizarre things are. World War II, for Americans, was a war that lasted for four years, and it affected Everybody. It affected everybody. But we've been at war for 14 years, and our lives just kind of go on like normal. Most of us never even think about the fact that we're at war right now. World War II also claimed 60 million lives. We think about that, we acknowledge that it's a tragedy. We think about those numbers and we cringe. When we think about the atomic bombs going off in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, we lament the loss of lives. We ask, does that have to happen? We see pictures from the Holocaust, and we grasp, we gasp, and we cringe. But 60 million lives have been taken in abortion clinics in America since 1973. And people don't even bat an eye. And worse yet, as a sign of our national conscience, is we can see an intelligent, highly educated, sophisticated female executive simply eating her lunch as she talks about how doctors know how to harvest the organs of unborn babies and sell them for three hundred, I mean, for thirty to hundred dollars a piece. She just sits casually, you know, and talks about these parts of these babies as she's talking about like computer chips or daycare supplies. And there's a growing number of people that look at that and go, "What's the big deal?" We are living in a country where we're teaching our kids that bullying is wrong unless somebody doesn't agree with what is culturally popular and accepted. Then bullying is okay. Name-calling is okay. Suing people and destroying their livelihood is okay in the name of progress. 
We live in a decadent and complacent society when a hero is a man who calls himself a Christian but thinks God made him the wrong sex and publicly changes his gender to a fawning and the applause of popular culture. But yet our heroes who serve our country and our armed forces and in law enforcement are land-based as thugs and murderers. Just like that, the nation of Israel... Our country is suffering from its success. We are struggling because of our prosperity. We are struggling for the lack of a meaningful struggle. We've been so prosperous for so very long that we've lost touch with reality and we've strayed away from the foundation of truth. It's it's been said that no nation has ever lived past its own success. If you look look back in history, you can see that's just the absolute truth. What's even more troubling than that, though, is that this is that Christians and God's people are affected by this complacency too. Christians in our country really have no idea what real suffering is and what real persecution is. I mean, we're starting to feel that pinch. We're starting to feel that pain as popular culture, you know, is beginning to stand against Christian values, and more and more Christians are being sued and ridiculed and become targets for their faith. But that's nothing compared to what's happened throughout history. It's nothing compared to what happens throughout other parts of the world. We're just facing the very top snowflake on the tip of the iceberg. Because history here in the United States, we, we, we've been allowed to freely practice our faith. We've been, we've been religiously prosperous for a long time as a people. And because of that, God's people have also become complacent. And so because of that, the church has become filled with consumer Christians who think that the church is about them and their likes and their, and their preferences instead of being about Christ and His mission. And because of that, there, there, there's been a softening on the doctrines of sin and hell. And as a result, there's a growing trend towards acceptance and approval of behaviors that have always, always, always been contrary to the will of God. And, and the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 24 begin to have an ominous ring to them when he says, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness has, will inc- be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And the hearts of many Christians are growing cold for Christ and, and his mission to save the lost. And the reason for that is just simply complacency. We live in a world when we complain to God that our car won't start or our smartphone crashes, you know, or the power goes out for more than an hour. We live in a world where, where Christians forget to pray to God you know, until, until something bad happens. We live in a world where everyone, everyone has access to the Word of God in multiple versions. Everybody has access to the Word of God, yet we don't read it. We live in a world filled full of people who are dying to know Jesus, and yet we think that our Jesus bumper stickers and our Facebook status should be enough to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to our friends and our neighbors. And we live in a world where there's so much abundance, and there's so much blessing from God, yet we continually forget the source of that provision. We, We forget to thank God for the basics like our life and our family and even our salvation. In fact, let me just ask you a question. And and I'll admit, it's a pointed question. But I'm going to ask it anyway. And the question is this. If you were to wake up tomorrow with only the things that you thanked God for today, what would you have? That might be even a question you should write down. If you were to wake up tomorrow with only the things that you thank God for today, what would you have? I mean, if the world completely turned itself upside down and God took everything away except what you thanked Him for today, what would you have? 
It's a tough question. But I asked that question because a friend of mine, Joshua, and I'm not talking about Joshua in the Bible. I'm talking about this Joshua right here. Okay? He shared a video with me that asked that very question. And this video has deeply stirred my heart. And I just I have to, to share this, this with you. So if you just give me a second. It was so cold during the night. He will suffer hypothermia. So hot during the day that your skin would burn to the edge of the container. The bugs that bite you felt like fire all over your body. But like driving a nail into wood, every hit, every beating, every blow to my body drew me closer to God. These are some of the notes I took when I had a chance to spend a few days with a lady called Helen Bahani. What you don't understand or what you don't get when you first meet Helen is her past. You see, Helen spent two and a half years locked inside a metal shipping container for refusing to recant her faith. And not only that, she taught me one of the most profound spiritual lessons of my life. She taught me about thankfulness. If you were to wake up tomorrow with only the things you thank God for today, what would you have? In Helen's case, every day for two and a half years, she woke up on the floor of a jagged metal shipping container inside a prison where she was beaten and tortured regularly. But one of the most incredible stories for me is her response to a beating that very nearly took her life. You see, Helen had been writing notes of encouragement and sending them to fellow prisoners, putting scriptures on them that she could memorize. And the guards came to her and they said, Helen, where is your Bible? And she said, I don't have one. And they said, is it in your head? She said, yeah, it's in my head. And they said, well, we're going to have to beat it out of you. They proceeded to grab Helen and, and they dragged her to a courtyard, placed her in the middle and started to beat her with wooden battens. What she does next has single-handedly changed my Christian walk forever. You see, in the middle of this beating, Helen stops and looks at the guy hitting her and says to him, I do not hate you, for you are just carrying out an order. But you need to know that I'm carrying out an order too. And that's not to renounce Jesus. So carry on. Carry on? I mean, when they were finished beating her, they simply threw her body back into the metal shipping container. And as she lay on the floor in the container, she began to sing the following. Thank you for the cold nights. Thank you for the hot days. Thank you for the hunger, for the sickness. Thank you for the bugs that bite my body. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thankfulness. Have you ever stopped for a minute to think about what role it plays in your life? I mean, what role thankfulness plays in your everyday? If you're like me, it's probably not much. You see, I ask God for a lot. But in comparison, I thank Him for very little. 
the more I think about people like Helen Bahani and the persecuted church, the more it begins to dawn on me that it's actually reversed. You see, they thank God for almost everything. And in comparison, they ask Him for very little. And this is because they're not following an institution called Christianity. They're following a living God. We're following a living God who walked the earth and who today walks the earth through His Spirit. Our gratitude, our thankfulness, and the level by which we measure it should not be based off a set of rules or expectations and buzzwords, I guess, created by this Christian pop culture. It should be defined by Jesus Christ, who walked with broken people, loved the unlovable, stood in the face of religion, led with a character and set of principles that he would not compromise for anyone or any deal. Didn't seem to care about things like brand, fashion label, return on investment, number of friends on Facebook or followers on Instagram. And didn't mind looking awkward if saying no meant the right outcome was achieved. And on top of all that, loved a dying and broken world with a passion that could not be filled, stopped, watered down or contained. Jesus Christ, the Saviour of the world, who ultimately laid down His life so that a sinful, broken and dislocated group of people could have eternal life with Him. And for that, I'm forever thankful. If you were to wake up tomorrow with only the things you thank God for today, what would you have? When I watched this video for the first time, my heart was pounding and uh, I had to fight back the tears. Because I'm going to be honest with you, this lady's story convicted me all the way down to my core. Because I have no idea. I have no idea what her life was like. I can't even like imagine what she endured for her faith. That right there is persecution. And I'm just going to be bold and I'm just going to stay right up front here. That if that was what persecution was in the United States right now, I believe that there would be a lot less people who would call themselves Christians. And I'm just being honest about that, okay? I mean, there are people who, call, who, who, who do not identify with Christ today because of the pressure that's being applied on them because of culture right now. And there are even fewer Christians who have the courage to follow where God leads them in their day-to-day -day lives at work and at school and at home. But what? What happened if that was the face of persecution in America today? Well, let me just tell you, there would be two things that would happen. First of all, we would see who the real Christians are. And the second thing is, the world would absolutely sit up and take notice. Because it's hard not to notice such a bright light in the deep darkness. In the middle of this woman's beating, she says to the one beating her, I do not hate you for you're just carrying out an order. But I carry out an order too. And it's not to renounce Jesus Christ. So carry on. What? Let me be clear. There isn't any question whom this woman serves. Even this woman's enemies know for a certainty whom she serves. The choice of whom she serves is absolutely evident in her words and also in her deeds and the way she lives her life. 
She was not, she, she not only unquestionably followed where God led, led, but she praised Him. She praised Him and thanked Him, and even in the darkest, deepest parts of her ministry. This woman's story humbles me. It makes me wonder, whom will we choose to serve? I mean, we might think that that, you might think that might be a weird question, okay? I mean, because we follow Jesus, right? But my response is, yeah, but really, it hasn't cost us anything yet. It hasn't really cost us much yet. But how many of us would choose to follow God when things get harder? And make no mistake, a time will come when things do get harder. How many Christians in America will choose to serve God when the price goes up? How many will choose to serve God when they have to choose between God and popularity or between God and and the acceptance of their friend and their peers? How many will choose to serve God when they have to choose between God and their job or, or God and their business? How many will choose God when serving God means that most people around you will despise you and hate you and maybe even want to harm you? How many people will choose to serve God when doing so might mean a prison sentence or maybe even torture or even death? You see, the truth is, our culture has a lot of idols that we were all really comfortable with. Idols all around us. Okay? Idols that we actually kind of like and kind of get comfortable with. Idols like convenience and idols of technology and the idol of stuff and the idol of entertainment. And I'm not saying that these things in of themselves are bad. But a lot of people worship at these idols. And it would be hard for people to give these up. It would be hard for them to trade these idols in for God. Our culture worships at the idol of tolerance and the the false god of diversity. Again, tolerance and diversity are important and they're good things. They're not bad in and of themselves. But when they get elevated to the supreme status, as our culture has done, it becomes dangerous. There's also the idols of progress and the idol of choice and the idol of liberty. Again, progress and choice and liberty are all good things in their own right, but their excess and their elevation above God is destructive. I mean, the idea of liberty and freedom and choice is lofted up as a rationale for the right of women to extinguish the lives of unborn children. And remember, 60 million children have paid for that right with their lives. The reality is that lots of idols and false gods are around us. And we know that our hearts are prone to wander, even those of us who follow God. And we live in a time right now of, incompre- of incredible complacency. We, we, we've been, our complacency is induced many, by many years of prosperity. In fact, there's been so much prosperity in our country right now. There exists a gospel that didn't exist before. It's called the, the prosperity gospel. It's this idea that if you'll follow Jesus and if you'll just have faith, that you'll have all the money you'll ever want. You'll be as blessed as you ever want to be. And you'll have all the material possessions you'll ever want to have. That you'll be healed of every sickness that will ever come, come your way if you'll just pray and you'll just believe. That God wants you to be prosperous and healthy and wealthy and happy. That that's the point of your Christian walk. See, there are a lot of idols around us. Even some Christian-sounding idols. And we live at a time... Because our prosperity doesn't cost a whole lot to follow God. And so it's really easy for all of us to get sidetracked. But the truth is that God is calling you into His plan and His purpose. He has a plan for your life. God has something He wants you to do. He wants you to follow where He's leading you. He wants you to trust Him and not hesitate. And right now, you and I, we have a choice. Do you choose to follow or not follow? It's as simple as that. As I said before, God is not going to force His blessing on you. You can choose to serve or not to serve. 
Or you can choose to believe that you can do both, that you can serve God and, and the idols around us, even though you really can't. But let me be clear in the words of Joshua, the, jo- the words that the Joshua said, to choose this day who you will serve is as relevant today as it was for the Israelites back then. And it should be a haunting reminder that there are a lot of forces competing for all of our hearts. And we should not fool ourselves because we all of us must choose. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. So choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the gods of our culture or the gods of our desires? Or will you serve the one and only true living God, Jesus Christ? Choose today whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Let me pray for you. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the depth of your word. I thank you for your just unending grace. How many times, O oh Lord, have I fallen down? How many times, O oh Lord, have I let you down? How many times have I wandered astray? How many times have I followed up for my own path? How many times have I inadvertently and sometimes even on purpose worshipped at the idols of, of entertainment or especially the idol of self? How many times, O oh Lord... Have I let you down? But your grace, you continue to draw me back. I pray, Lord, that you would just create in me a clean heart. That you renew that spirit in me. I pray, Father, that I would follow you with all my heart. And I pray, Lord God, that you would use your word, the the story of Joshua, to change the hearts of those who hear it, Lord. I pray, Father, that this congregation would respond to your word with a deep passion and a deep need to do the will of God. I think that we pray that we'd all would want to serve you with all our hearts and all our minds and all our soul and all our strength. And I pray, Father, you'd raise up in this congregation of people who would know you and love you and would go out and storm the gates of hell and who would go out and share the hope and the healing of the gospel of Jesus with the rest of the world. I pray for those who need you now and I pray that you would would meet those needs. And I pray for those who weren't here and that you would bring them back safely to us. And I pray, Lord God, for Vacation Bible School that's coming up, and I pray for the kids who would get saved and and the hearts that would be here. I pray, Lord, you'd be glorified in our midst, and we love you, cherish you. We praise you in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.